welcome to another edition of the JNMP podcast. This month we're discussing interventions for tremor, as well as looking at drug-resistant epilepsy and the use of cannabinoids. First up, I'm joined by Dr. Emily Stockings. She's from the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. Emily is going to be discussing her recent JNMP review, outlining the evidence for cannabis use in drug-resistant epilepsy. So Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. I wondered if you could start off by telling us about exactly what drug-resistant epilepsy is and, importantly, how often does it occur? So drug-resistant epilepsy is defined by the International League Against Epilepsy as the failure of adequate and well-tolerated trials of at least two appropriately chosen anti-epileptic drugs. So between 70 to 80% of patients with new-onset epilepsy will achieve complete seizure freedom using uh, standard anti-epileptic drugs such as valparate or carbamazepine. The remaining 20 to 30% are what we consider to be drug-resistant. And these people also suffer significant comorbidity, so high rates of cognitive impairment, often um, physical and psychiatric diseases. So the the people who are suffering drug-resistant epilepsy are also suffering a lot of other comorbidities as well. And how can cannabinoids help with that? And how can it help with drug-resistant epilepsy? So firstly, it's important to mention that in the case of epilepsy, when we say cannabinoids, we're almost exclusively talking about cannabidiol or CBD. So in cannabis plants, there are about 500 different compounds. And the most abundant is delta tetrahydrocannabinol or THC, which is what people are commonly familiar with. And this gives the psychoactive effects of cannabis. So the next most abundant compound in the cannabis plant is CBD or cannabidiol. And this is what is commonly being used, almost exclusively being used in the treatment of epilepsy. So I'll just be commenting on CBD. So in the body, we have this this system called the endocannabinoid system, which is a biological system that's involved in modulating different physiological and cognitive processes, such as appetite and also pain. So a number of studies have actually found that this system also plays a role in the pathophysiology of epilepsy and that these pathways could then be targeted by different um, modulators to prevent or reduce seizure activity. So CBD actually has been found to modulate or inhibit a number of receptors within this system, but we still don't exactly know that the mechanism for which this occurs. The mechanism for THC, which is the psychoactive compound of, of, of cannabis, is a lot clearer. But for CBD, we know that it works on this endocannabinoid system and that does modulate seizure activity, but the exact mechanisms of that are still sort of being worked out. They're still a bit unknown. And your review also looked at sort of the safety and efficacy profile of cannabinoids in drug-resistant epilepsy. So, so what did you find? Yeah, so we found that people who used CBD, so all of the studies we examined were this CBD compound, so cannabidiol, So people using this were more likely to experience a 50% reduction in their seizures and complete freedom from their seizures, although this outcome was rarer. And we also found that their quality of life was improved. So parents or caregivers would report they saw an improvement in in their child. We actually estimated that if a doctor prescribed CBD to eight people, one person out of those eight people would experience a meaningful reduction in seizures, which we think is clinically important. In terms of side effects, people using CBD were more likely to experience side effects. And these were most commonly things like drowsiness or diarrhea, um, also fatigue and changes in appetite. And again, if a doctor prescribes CBD to three people, about one out of those three would experience some side effects. 
but I guess it, when we consider the overall profile of people who are experiencing these drug resistant epilepsies, these side effects are relatively minor. It's important to note that our research so far has been to quite a specific population. So most commonly young people, the average age of people in the studies was around 16. And they're also suffering very rare and drug resistant types of epilepsy that can also be life threatening. So this included um, Lennox-Gastaut and Dravet syndromes. And it's also important to remember that the CBD was provided in addition to their standard treatments. So it's, it's an, an adjunctive therapy rather than replacing the existing drugs. So it sounds like the side effect profile and the efficacy of that pales in comparison, obviously, as you mentioned, to the severity of the epileptic seizures that these um, young adults are suffering from. How, how do current regulations sort of allow for patients to be prescribed cannabinoids? Is the evidence base changing the legislation landscape? Yes, so legislation is always a bit slow and frustrating for, for patients and advocacy groups. In Australia, um, we were involved here with helping the Australian government to write the, the guidance documents for accessing cannabidiol in Australia. So there's no actual CBD product listed on the Australian Register of Therapeutic Goods, uh, the TGA. So access is possible, but it's via a special access scheme and it has to be done by an authorised prescriber. And this can be quite a lengthy process with lots of red tape, but it is very much possible. CBD can also be accessed by a clinical trial. Um, and these are all considered on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, an important thing to consider for the Australian context is that the cost can be prohibitive. It's incredibly expensive, but it is possible. And I think that in terms of the legislation landscape changing, governments are being responsive to uh, media reports and advocacy groups. So moving to the UK, there's obviously been very high profile media reports of, of young people, in particular the case of Billy Coldwell, the 12-year-old boy with epilepsy, whose products were seized when he came back in the UK from Canada, and then subsequently the um, authorities relented and gave them back to him. I think this is sort of showing that there is a push to, to make access a bit easier. So CBD was recently classified as a medicine in the UK, and it's now, recla the reclassification means that um, manufacturers have to have a product license and it has to go through proper licensing requirements. So doctors can prescribe it in exceptional cases, but it is still very difficult for patients to access and there's still a lot of hype and controversy around it. But I think um, as more studies come out, there are good studies coming out, new ones each year. And I think the legislation will change in response to that. And particularly as we get these high profile media reports at the same time. Absolutely. They do seem to be sort of engaging a conversation um, regarding cannabinoids in the use, um, not only in epilepsy, but I'm also seeing it in the media in terms of other, other effects it may have. Emily, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. So that was Dr. Emily Stockings from the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. You can, of course, read her paper for free on jnmp.bmj.com. now got Dr. George Keggy from the Department of Neurology, Canton Hospital in St. Gallen in Switzerland. He's joining us to discuss the historical development of techniques and interventions for tremor. So George, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. I wondered if you could first define tremor for us and in particular sort of how it manifests in various neurological diseases. 
So um, the definition of tremor is uh, that is involuntary oscillatory sinusoidal movement of a body part. And uh, clinically, we have to distinguish between the resting tremor, which occurs when the patient is seated and uh, fully rested, tremor which uh, occurs on action or on posture. And then clinically, we further uh, have to look where the tremor occurs, whether it's uh, one limb, one hand, both hands, if it affects the feet as well, or the face, the voice. So this is um, clinically important to decide then what entity uh, the tremor might be. And I think the most important entities uh, causing tremor is essential tremor mostly affects the hands. It's, it is usually bilateral and is a pretty pure tremor without other uh, movement disorder. And it shouldn't have too much of the resting component. So when the patient is seated still, so he shouldn't, he, sh he shouldn't shake too much. And it is a pretty static disorder. So that means uh, the tremor remains more or less the same and there are no other movement disorder or symptoms occurring in the later phase of the disease. In the last couple of years, there have been a bit of a debate whether it is a purely um, essential tremor or a couple of these patients might not have dystonic tremor. And dystonic tremor is defined as a tremor in the limb, which is also manifests dystonia. And it is important to recognize because um, it might respond differently to medical treatment, but also to stereotactic surgery and DBS compared to essential tremor. And um, for the patient, uh, this part, this kind of tremor uh, is very disabling because uh, it typically has this task specificity. So when a patient does something with his hand, the tremor gets worse, which is not that much the case uh, in essential tremor. Drug treatment uh, usually is very uh, frustrating, uh, causing side effects and not a lot of effect. And of course, the last big category is uh, Parkinson's tremor. And this is characterized by an important resting tremor component, much more than on posture and action. And therefore, uh, compared to dystonic um, tremor, it is less pronounced when the patient uh, uses his hands. So this is also a very helpful clinical sign when, for example, the patient has to write something. In dystonic tremor, the tremor gets worse. And in Parkinson's tremor, the tremor gets less. And it's typically also asymmetric. And of course, a proportion of patients with Parkinson's disease, about 50% um, of the patients, they never experience tremor. And among these who have a tremor at the beginning of disease, about 25% lose uh, the tremor when the disease goes on. So this is an important point also for whatever um, lesioning, stereotactic procedures, because this is a dynamic uh, disease, uh, not like uh, essential tremor or dystonic tremor. And of course, also drug treatment is very effective in Parkinson's disease. And in the last uh, 20 years also, we have the deep brain stimulation, which, has, uh, which was a big milestone in the treatment of uh, Parkinson's disease. There are other rare forms of tremor, like rubral tremor or Holmes tremor, neuropathic tremor or cerebellar tremor. Um, which are 
difficult to treat um, in both ways like drug treatment and stereotactic treatment. So your paper obviously sort of gives an overview of tremor and in particular the sort of historical development of techniques, particularly neurosurgical techniques and interventions for tremor. So I wondered how are these sort of approaches to you know, neurosurgery and those sorts of interventions to tremor changed over time and, and when are they used and, and sort of how are they viewed in, in modern times? So of course, um, like uh, we tried to summarize in our paper, like this this development and the first steps which have been made in neurosurgical tremor treatment, started in the first uh, like 20th, 20th century in the, in the in the beginning, and uh, they started to do lesions at the corticospinal tract level, and of course they had to realize that. Yes, it abolishes tremor, but it always causes severe paresis, uh, which is uh, which is uh, not really what they wanted. And then, uh, like the first approaches on the level of the extrapyramidal system, so meaning reducing the tremor without causing paresis, uh, they date back to 1939. And then first stereotactic approaches um, to the pallidum about 1950. And they used several different methods to do these lesions, like um, alcohol installations, they ligated vessels, um, they applied electrocoagulation, and um, nowadays uh, radiofrequency ablation is uh, still widely used to do like stereotactic lesion. The target also has moved away from the globus pallidum to the thalamus about after. 1950, and um, so the thalamus then really was the the target, especially the VIM nucleus, which had a, a really very good effect on tremor without uh, causing uh, much side effects. And then, especially in Parkinson's disease, the invent of levodopa in the late 60s, um, like um, pretty much stopped. This, uh, the interest of invasive treatments because there was now a very effective drug treatment, but um, we all know that this uh, drug treatment also has its limitations with the fluctuations. Um, then in 1990, with the uh, invent of deep brain stimulation, there was like a big revival in stereotactic uh, neurosurgery, which uh, was, was um, a big milestone and very effective to treat uh, Parkinson's disease, of course, but also then to treat uh, tremor and also uh, dystonia. So the academic interest shifted then um, to DVS and uh, like dominated this field, this field in the, in the last uh, 20 to 25 years. Despite the obvious advantages of non-invasive techniques like DBS, are there other sort of advantages or disadvantages to why perhaps these have sort of taken over from neurosurgery? Or in fact, is that wrong? Have they, have they not actually taken over? Is neurosurgery still something that is currently used to treat tremor? Yes, of course. Like at the moment, I would still say that the gold standard is, 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 um, is still DBS to treat um, tremor and, and and definitely Parkinson's disease but in the like last years these incisionless techniques uh, had a bit of a revival uh, because the techniques have improved and uh, of course the advantage of all these incisionless techniques uh, are that uh, yeah you don't have to cut 
You don't have to put something into the brain. And uh, with the newer techniques, you reach a very, uh, they're very precise and, and safe. And so uh, the first technique, which uh, is not that new, is uh, like a gamma knife surgery, which was in, uh, first invented in about 1970. And it has been investigated uh, in the treatment of tremor and is um, pretty effective. But in my view, has a couple of problems. And uh, like the first problem, it doesn't allow for direct nor indirect lesion verification during the intervention. So uh, you you just, you know, you have to treat and you have to wait for three to six months until uh, the clinical effect kicks in. There is There are reports about um, lesion extension so that the lesion grows more than you want and then you get uh, side effects and you, you can't then uh, do anything and so the other incisionless technique which had a, an important revival during the last uh, five to ten years is, is, is mr guided focus ultrasound it is uh, this technique is known since uh, 1980 and then became commercially available first it was used in tactic neurosurgery um, for telamic, telamatomies for neuropathic pain. We there learned that it is safe and it is precise. And of course, then the interest uh, started also um, in movement disorders. And uh, during the last eight years, it has been applied in several movement disorders, especially tremor, of course, with first um, successful case reports, uh, but ending in a, in a bigger, like randomized sham controlled blinded trial showing a good effect in unilateral treatment uh, on tremor. And we now also have the two-year follow-up data, which are pretty promising and um, still a good suppression of tremor. Uh, the advantage of this incisionless techniques, of course, is that you the patient is awake and you start uh, with low energy sonification and this, this lasts about 20 seconds each sonification and you can you always after each sonification you you check the patient whether there's already clinical effect whether you have side effects and then you you slowly go up with the energy and so you have this direct clinical control of the patient regarding effect and side effect and you have the uh, and the patient is in the MR scanner and you have this thermo map control where you can see where it gets hot, where your lesion is. So you have to this, this double check clinically and in the MR scanner to say, yes, we are there where we want to be and it works. And then you go up with the, with the energy and you, you set the lesion. So I think this is the big advantage of this method. The, the problem of, I think, every incisionless or lesional technique is that at the moment we do it uh, unilaterally because um, we know from the past um, that bilateral lesions can cause um, pretty severe side effects. And uh, I think this is, uh, this is still the challenge of, of the future to, to really check whether this technique is only uh, be used unilaterally or if we can also uh, use it uh, in a bilateral way. And is that the next step in terms of what you envisage for the future of tremor intervention? Is, is that where we're heading to bilateral lesions? Well, this is, I think this is at the moment, I think it, this is the crucial question. So uh, I think we learned that this technique is 
very effective, it's safe, uh, it's cheap for unilateral treatment. And here it is a really good alternative to, to DBS. And um, as you said, this will be an issue for further research, whether we can do it on both sides. What we know that we shouldn't do it in the same in the same intervention. So we shouldn't do both lesions uh, in the same time. But have, what haven't been investigated so far, whether it is possible, for example, to do one lesion at one time and after six to 12 months, uh, the opposite, uh, the lesion on the other side. So this, this uh, um, staged procedure might be uh, possible to treat, uh, to do bilateral treatment. But especially for tremor, what we had, there's no like comparative study, but um, the quality of life improves. So when you have one good hand, so for example, when your dominant hand doesn't shake anymore, your quality of life uh, is improves very much. Whether when your other hand improves as well, it just doesn't add uh, very much uh, on quality of life. So it might also be that just you know, one good hand is, is, is usually enough to have a good uh, quality of life. And in PD, there, uh, in Parkinson's disease, there are some data, new data, that it is also effective. But I think here there is, as I said it, at the beginning, because Parkinson's disease is not a static disease, it might not be the ideal disease to do a static lesion. So in my view, DBS will be the, the standard of care for stereotactic interventions in Parkinson's disease still for a pretty pretty long time. And uh, maybe in cases where DBS is not possible, then um, MR-guided focus ultrasound might be a, uh, an alternative treatment, whereby in, in tremor, um, MR-guided focus ultrasound is already uh, an alternative for DBS. And another um, like focus uh, for research is, of course, as usual, the target. Um, so most of the studies have been done in the nucleus, so the VIM nucleus, uh, the thalamotomy, whether we have tried or we have done a study and using the tract in the subthalamic, posterior subthalamic area. And we believe that, uh, you know, uh, that hitting the tract is, might be more effective and safe compared to the nucleus. But this has to be studied in the future as well. Well, for any of our JNMP listeners who are keen to read more about the historical development of techniques and interventions for tremor, I highly recommend you go onto jnmp.bmj.com and read Dr. George Keggy's paper, which is free for download. Um, and George, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for asking me for this podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs>